Christmas. It's tomorrow, it's Christmas Eve, and then the day arrives. Hopefully you're ready. How many of you in, in preparation for Christmas have already watched at least one version of the Christmas Carol? Anybody? Two, three, four, five, six. All right. How many have ever seen a version of the Christmas Carol? All right. So may, I'm, that's okay, good. So well, we're on the same page. This is the book written by Charles Dickens, right? The Happy Story. You know, for me, there's one kind of portrayal of his story that I love the best. It was created in 1970, and that's, of course, when I was created in 1970, so that's probably why I like it, but um, it's simply called Scrooge, and it's a musical version of A Christmas Carol, and it is, uh, it, it's just fun. To me, it's just a, a great portrayal of this story, and, and maybe as you've heard the story or seen it televised, you maybe didn't know the backstory behind A Christmas Carol. Uh, but in 1843, Charles Dickens wrote this story, partly because he needed some money, and that's always good motivation, to support his family. But, but secondly, he wrote this story because as he observed what was happening around him in London, he was just totally distressed by what he was seeing. Because at this time in London, in the 1840s, it was a season of depression, uh, financially, but it was also a seasoned depression just socioeconomically as a country. Uh, 75% of the people in London were working class citizens or beneath. Many of them lived in special housing where families would live in one-room houses. Uh, oftentimes, not only mom and dad were working, many of which were working in debtors' prisons to pay off debts they'd accrued during these hard seasons, but the children had to also work. In fact, Charles Dickens himself as a young man, had to work as a child as his parents were in debtors' prisons paying off their debts. So he sees what's happening in London. He sees the wealthy, wealthy, the, the richest people right among in their little carriages rolling through the streets of, of, of London where you had the impoverished people begging, kids that were just totally starving, pale trying to sell flowers or matches just to help the family have what they would need to survive. And you would say it really was a dark day. I mean, I know when you look at the story of A Christmas Carol, it's romanticized, right? We watch it on TV, and there's plum pudding, and there's mistletoe, and there's frosted glass, and there's snow, and, and there's, they have a way of romanticizing the story. But what I liked about the version that I appreciate, the Scrooge, written in, uh, produced in 1970, was it really kind of focuses in on the darkness of the true story. You see, when Charles Dickens wrote this, it was a ghost story. And I remember watching Scrooge for the, for the very first time as a young boy, and it scared the death out of me. Uh, if you've not seen the version I'm talking about, there's this one scene where the first angel comes and visits him of Christmas past, and as he's flying out his window, he is surrounded by all these ghosts, and they are scary looking. And his friend is scary looking. He's got this chains, and he's floating around and talking, and it just, to me, was scary. And it dawned on me, you know, they actually wrote stories back in the 1800s. What they told around Christmas time were not stories of Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. They told horror stories. 
Ghost stories were the things that you told when the family gathered around Christmas. And so this was Charles Dickens' version of a, of a horror story. And, when you, and if you've ever read the actual book, anybody actually read the book? There is a book. There was a book. You know, it's called A Christmas Carol. That's his book that he wrote. Sold 6,000 copies within the first week of his writing of it. It's scary. It's like reading a Stephen King novel. It's dark. Because he was trying to show us what was happening in the environments in which he was writing in, in London. It wasn't mistletoe and plum pudding and stuffed goose and all those things all the time. There was extreme darkness hanging over the city. And not just the London fog that we're all familiar with. In fact, you know what? The London fog really wasn't fog at all. You know what it was? It was smoke from the coal stacks, from the factories where children labored. And if they weren't laboring in the factories, they were the chimney sweeps cleaning out the chimneys of all the residences to make income. And they were soot covered. And there was a heaviness over there. The streets of London, rainwashed. Oftentimes, the contents of chamber pots poured out on the street side. Animal feces. Just not a great environment. And that's where the impoverished people often stood without much to wear, begging. And that's where we have this story of a miser who's not generous. He thinks the prisons are working quite well. He thinks that all the labor houses are working quite well. But he's transformed through an encounter. It's a story of salvation in the midst of a very bleak winter in London. And oftentimes, like I said, very romanticized. But it reminds me of a story that I think often also gets romanticized. And it's the story of that very first Christmas. The story of Jesus' birth. While many of us have seen it on, Carol, on, on Christmas cards, you see Mary and she's wearing these colorful robes and she has this little halo glow above her and you have all these sheep and deer, not deer, cows kind of looking in at the manger at the little baby who looks like he's well-fed, maybe like six months, blue eyes, blonde hair, you know, and that's the portrayal that we see, the airbrushed version of Christmas that we see. But that was not the Christmas that Mary and Joseph and Jesus experienced that first day. In fact, if you were to compare London with what was happening in the nation of Israel who had been captive to Rome now, it was pretty similar. There was a bleakness. There was a darkness. There was a heaviness over Israel. In fact, for 400 plus years, God had been silent. Although they still had the temple and they still had the rituals and they still had all the things that they did, there was no voice of God through the prophets. There was no appearance of God and in some kind of angelic form. It had been silent. And they had pretty much thought God had totally forgotten and abandoned them. The hope of the Messiah was off the table. But yet it was in the darkness of those moments of history that Jesus stepped into this world. And it was in the darkness of those moments that the angels that night in the surrounding hills of Bethlehem approached some shepherds, terrified him to death practically. But they came with Christmas greetings of good news, of good news. We've been in a series called Christmas Greetings over these last several weeks, and we've been looking at the angel greetings to the various key players in the story surrounding the birth of Jesus. 
And today we're going to hone in on a story that I'm sure you've heard countless times, especially around this holiday season. But my, my hope is that you maybe will approach the story today with a new way of looking at it. Because I know there are people in the room today who really could use some good news, much like Israel did in the days in which they were living, the time in which God chose to come in his wisdom. So Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go there to discover the good news that the angels came to greet the shepherds with. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use your smart device, your tablet, your, your iPhone, your Samsung, if you choose to go that route. Um, you can go to our website, albanync.org. No, it's not paid for by Apple. Don't worry. Uh, you can go to albanync.org on, online, and our notes are there. Or if you use the YouVersion Bible app, the notes are embedded in the Bible app. Many of you know how to get there. You can find your way to that. Or we have a church app you can find in your store by searching Neighborhood Church Share Faith, and there's an app there for you as well. But Luke chapter 2, you've heard it, you've read it, you've heard it quoted by Linus on the Charlie Brown Christmas, all right? But let's not, let's not airbrush this story today. My goal is to look at this again, to remind us of how unextraordinary, Jesus came. All right, let's look at it. Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I know you've heard that passage read before, usually with a deep narrator's voice and maybe Silent Night playing in the background. But I want us to look at this again for a moment. And I find it first interesting that Luke, and I love the way Luke writes his gospel, because what Luke always does is he highlights the lives of women and children. Because in the day in which Luke was writing this gospel, women and children were considered less than superior compared to men. And the gospel always elevates the quality of life, human life, especially of women and children. And so he dedicates a lot of time to the story of Mary and the birth of a vulnerable child, baby Jesus. He gives time to that, but what he also does is he puts the story right into the stream of history. And so he tells us what was going on. It was during the days Caesar Augustus ruled, and there was a tax that had been declared under the governor of Syria called Quirinius. So he puts it right into history. But this is why I think it's interesting, because many of us want to kind of separate political life from what God is doing. We want to separate social life from what God is doing. But I think it's interesting that God used history to bring forth his child. I mean, think about it. There would be no other reason for Mary and Joseph to be in Bethlehem if there hadn't been a tax. This wasn't their home. They were living in Nazareth. I believe they were probably in Nazareth because Joseph's family they were laborers who were builders. 
And just a few miles north of them was the great city Sephorus, which was a, a Roman city that there was being constructed as we speak. And I think Joseph went up there to find work. And so he was living in Nazareth, and that's where he met Mary. And that's where the bride exchange took place. They were pledged in marriage. And that's where Mary was found to be pregnant, but not by Joseph. And it was quite, it's quite a problem for Mary and Joseph. But I love the fact that Luke just shows us something, that God works through human history. You might look at today and go, man, it's pretty bleak. Well, it wasn't as bleak as the Roman Empire. God's purpose still prevails through history. Never forget that. Never lose hope. That no matter what you think is happening in our world around us, God is not unconcerned. He's very involved, working out his plan under his wisdom. But they were going there primarily to be taxed, and this was very common, that you would go back to your home of origin. So because Joseph was from the line of David... His family home was Bethlehem. So for me, if it was to be me as a child, I would have to return back to, say, Medford, where I was born and where my family lived. That would be our family home. Because in the days in which the story was written, families didn't travel much from home. They kind of stayed together. And so they make this journey, and Mary was probably in her third trimester of her pregnancy during this 80-mile journey And it wasn't like I-5 in a plush Honda with heated seats. I mean, you know, it was none of that. It was 80 miles, probably on foot. I know we see wonderful stories of her sitting on a donkey, but the Bible really doesn't show us anything of that nature. It could have been they were both on on foot, 80 miles. Ladies, imagine in your third trimester of pregnancy, walking, or even riding a donkey for that matter, 80 miles over rough terrain. No wonder by the time she got there, it was time for the baby to be born, you know? Because I remember when our first child, Jameson, was about to be born, the doctors told Trisha to go for walks. And so we were walking all around our neighborhood trying to hurry up this baby. Well, you could imagine, by the time they got there, it was time. And in, in fact, it was. It says that when, as they were there, The time came for her to give birth to her baby. And in the urgency of time, they were trying to find a place to do it. I know that we tend to dramatize this part of the story. Lots of innkeepers all saying, no, don't have any room. You know, we don't really know how that looked. All we know is there was no place for them. And I think this is interesting because isn't this Joseph's hometown? Wouldn't there be family who would know Joseph and say, well, certainly we can make some room for you. Maybe they did. We don't know exactly. All we know is that when it came time for Jesus to be born, there was no room for them. Could have been that their family ostracized them because this is, again, this is Jewish people who lived according to the law. She was an adulteress. And who's going to believe that she's carrying God's baby, right? So even if they did have family, the family may have ostracized her and, if anything, gave them shelter in what would be their animal shelter. Tradition holds that it was probably a cave. Around the first century, the Christian believers believed it was a cave. In fact, there's a church built over the cave where they believed Jesus was born still to this day. Could have been a cave that the house had been built and incorporated and part of, and that's where they went. And guess what? They were very much alone, very much alone, giving birth to a baby. Now, ladies, imagine being 13, 14 years old which is the age at which they pretty much have placed that Mary would be. As soon as a, as a girl was able to conceive, she was married. 
So a young teenager giving birth to her first baby. No midwife, no nurse. Just Joseph, who knows how to build stuff, right, but doesn't know how to deliver a baby. And cows and sheep and rats and all manner of things happening in this space in Bethlehem. Now, we would not really know much of anything about Bethlehem had it not been for the Old Testament. It was the place where a lady named Rachel, who happened to be the matriarch of the Jewish faith, she was Jacob's wife. While she was giving birth to Benjamin, she died. What a great history piece for Mary to be thinking about as she's in Bethlehem about to give birth and thinking she's going to die. It was also known because this was the place in which a young man named David lived and his family. Now, David, we know, was a shepherd who became what? The giant slayer who became king. So it was David's town. But we also know about Bethlehem because it was the prophesied location of Jesus' birth or the birth of Messiah. Look at it in, in Micah 5 2. It says this But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In other words, pre existent. So we know about Bethlehem, we sing songs about it. But it wasn't much to behold at this time, except it was overcrowded and there was no place for Mary and Joseph. And so in this cave, in this stable, Mary gives birth to Jesus. Now, I've never given birth, in case you're wondering. But I have been present at several of, all of my kids' births and one of my grandbabies' births. And my second grandbaby was just born this last week. Yes, congratulations to me. But what I do know about deliveries <coughs> is they are messy. They are a mess. And we just have to take a minute here and look at this moment in the stable where you have a young teenage girl, probably very afraid because a lot of women don't survive giving birth to children. And all she has is Joseph. There's no midwife. Because the Bible says that Mary wrapped the baby in cloth. That means there was no other lady there to attend. Oftentimes, if you were giving birth, imagine being done giving birth as a 14, 13 year old, how painful everything has been, how much agony you're in, and you can barely focus. And now she's wrapping her baby in swaddling clothes. The process of swaddling a baby still is used today. My grandbaby was swaddled when I held her, I had to wear a mask because I was sick. But it helps them feel secure and kind of keeps them tight and comfy. Very common practice. But I got to thinking about that passage. Here's Mary wrapping her somewhat bloodied and dirty son in cloths. You know, the next time that she would wrap Jesus in cloths, he would be bloody. He wouldn't be a baby, though. He'd be that Savior who died on a cross for the sins of all the world once again to be placed into a cave. This time, it's not the one he was born in, but it's the one he would rise from. So she wraps Jesus in these clothes and places him in a manger. And we just have to pause here and look at the story and capture the moment that, for me, is still baffling to this day. I look at the story of Luke chapter 2, and I go, this is so simple. This is, this is not complex at all. 
I mean, if I was the writer and I wanted to give birth to a, a king-born son, I think I would write the story differently. I'm just baffled what God of the universe would do in introducing to us his son. We can't take away the simplicity of this and the humility of this. It says about Jesus in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself, and he certainly did from the exalted pre Create, you know, pre-created Jesus. I mean, he's, at the, he's God, and he humbles himself to the point of a baby. And think about this. He comes out of Mary's womb, and he gasps for his first breath. This was the God who breathed life into Adam, and he's now gasping for his own breath. He's in the mess of the stable, and this is where God chooses to be born. We cannot miss the beautiful simplicity of this part of the story. And here's why. Here's why I think it's so important. Because the birth of the Savior in your life also requires humility. It's nothing grandiose. It's not a list of, well, you got to do all these things. you got to be this kind of a person. you got to get a 10 on this kind of a measuring scale, and then maybe God will accept you. No, this is a story of Jesus showing humility in the way that he was born, born right in the midst of the mess and the mire of our human existence. Don't take him from that place and and put him into some kind of palace where he's unapproachable because that's not what God was saying. He was saying, I have come near to you. I've come as near as I possibly ever could as a baby. I mean, how approachable is a baby? Every time I see a baby, you know what I do? I walk toward the baby. How many are guilty of the same thing? Oh, is he? You know, you want to look, you want to you, you move toward babies. I mean, who else do we move toward like that, right? But babies have this magnetism about them that we all just want to approach. And that's what God did. He came as a baby. So approachable, so vulnerable, but this is the beauty of the story. The birth of the Savior in your life requires that same kind of simplicity and that same kind of humility. We don't make it out to be something we have to do in order for God to love us or to have Christ born in our hearts. No, he's born right in the mess of your brokenness of life. That's where he's at. And that's why it makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so approachable for all of us. So don't miss it. Don't complicate it. Don't add to it. Capture this simplicity of the Christmas story and the humility that it required of Jesus. That's the same humility required of us, that we come with simple hearts that go, God, I'm broken. I know that I need a Savior, and thank you for making him so approachable, so within reach. And Jesus stayed that way all his life, didn't he? When he ministered, he was approachable. He was out with the people who needed him the most. Well, the story continues in Luke 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, again, we've seen this story reenacted with young boys wearing bathrobes and headwear and holding a staff and the shepherds. And we've come to understand the story so much that we don't question the story, right? Why shepherds? I mean, have you ever stopped reading the story and went, time out, why shepherds? I mean, this is God incarnate. Why wouldn't he appear, say, in Rome? The world power at that time to Caesar to say, look, you're not really the king. You're not really the emperor or the world power. I am, and I'm coming to be born, so step aside. Or maybe at least, if it's Israel, to, to the temple, because that's where God activity is, right? I mean, that's where the priests are. That's where the teachers of the law are. That's where the important people are in the, in, in the, in the Jewish life there. Why wasn't he born in the Holy of Holies? Why didn't Jesus appear on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Oh, because the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. We'll talk about that in a minute later. Okay, then why not maybe somebody else? Why shepherds? And there's a lot of reasons I've heard why shepherds, and maybe you've heard some of the same ones. They were available. They were out, you know, they're out watching sheep. How exciting can life be? So they were available. They were able to see the heavenly host. You know, they were outside. I mean, I've heard those kind of reasons. I've heard, well, because these were probably shepherds that were tending sheep that were going to be sacrificed at the temple because this Bethlehem was only six miles away from Jerusalem. And that's probably where the sheep were raised and, and taken care of until it was time for that sheep to lose its life. So who better to show the Lamb of God to than the shepherds who were tending the sheep that were used for sacrifice? That, that kind of makes sense. And others have said, well, you know, it's Bethlehem and David was a shepherd and so they're elevating the quality of shepherds because David was one and so here we are, we're gonna go to shepherds. Or even Jesus himself was what? He was the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. So, you know, he's got a shepherd affinity. Okay, maybe that's just what it is. I don't know, something this time really just kind of hit me as I was looking at it. Because I know we glamorize again, romanticize the story, but here's the thing about shepherds that maybe you didn't know culturally. Because of their job as shepherds, they were always considered unclean according to the Jewish law. The nature of their work put them in positions where they were always in a position of being unclean. And the only way you could become clean is going to the temple, offering some sacrifice. And, you know, they, because of their job, they weren't able to even do the rituals that were involved in their faith. And so the shepherds represent, in this era of time, the people who were kind of ostracized, overlooked by religion. You ever felt overlooked, pushed aside? Maybe not good enough to fit in the religious cluster of the elite. That's the shepherds. And yet, that's where God dispatches Gabriel with the good news, the shepherds. Interesting, but that's that's not all. Here's something else that just jumped off the page to me this year like never. I've never seen this. I mean, I've seen it, but I've never seen it. You know what I'm saying? It says this about the passage in Luke. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, the phrase, the glory of the Lord, you find that one time in the New Testament, and it's this passage. The glory of the Lord, though, is referenced repeatedly in the Old Testament. Let me explain why. The glory of the Lord was his manifest presence. 
we first see a strong demonstration of the glory of the Lord when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, and they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And we begin to see in Exodus what happens when God shows up in manifest. Now, we know God is everywhere, okay? I get it. But he shows up in his manifest presence at times. And we see on the peak of, of Mount Sinai, it is covered with, with what we would call fog or smoke or a dense cloud. Yet that cloud is like blowing up like a rock and roll light show. I mean, there's like thunder and there's stuff and it's like, Holy cow, and it's loud, and the ground shakes, and that's God's presence to the point where the Israelites say, we don't want to approach this at all. Moses, you go. We will stay, because God's presence is kind of overwhelming and kind of scary. Well, once the Ark of the Covenant is built, and Moses receives all the instructions for the temple, the tabernacle, all those things, and he, and he builds it according to the plans God had given him, and when they place the Ark of the Covenant into the holy place, and they offer all the sacrifices that are required, God's presence moves from Mount Sinai and comes and dwells above the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you've probably heard of because of Indiana Jones. That's the only reason a lot of people have heard of the Ark of the Covenant, but, you know, it's a chest. Not really all that big. It contains a few items like the original Ten Commandments. That, well, the second set because Moses broke the first ones. But the second set and there's some other things in there. But on, on the lid of the covenant was called the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat was the manifest glory of God, his presence. Now, here's the thing about God's presence in this holy of holies. Only one person could approach his presence because it was perfectly holy, powerful. And that was the high priest. And he could only do that one time a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go through a series of ritualistic cleansings until finally he was pure enough, his own sins were atoned for, that he would walk in through the holy place into the Holy of Holies. And he would have with him the blood of the sacrifice that had been offered on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he would, probably with a certain amount of fear, walk into the glory of the Lord. And if he wasn't clean, he would be struck dead immediately, approaching the holiness and the splendor of God's glory. That's why the high priest would wear a rope around his waist and bells on the, on the hem of his garment. Because if they stopped hearing the bells move... They figured he didn't pass the test. God struck him dead, and they would drag him out by the rope because nobody could go into the holy place without dying. This is the glory of the Lord. It was from this glory that his presence and power would, would manifest, and it would slay the sons of Korah who had offered a sacrifice that wasn't pleasing to God. I mean, this is, this is significant power, not to be dealt with lightly. But here's what's interesting. As Israel continued in their history to dec decline spiritually and turn their backs from God, God did what he promised would happen, that his presence would leave them and they would be kicked out of their land of promise. Ezekiel captures this moment when he sees a vision of God and his holiness leaving the temple, and it leaves. Shortly after, the people were themselves were kicked out of their land of promise. They became captives. They were in exile now, a thousand miles away in Babylon. The temple had been ransacked. And guess what they didn't find? The Ark of the Covenant. 
because Indiana Jones had it, right? No, they couldn't find the Ark of the Covenant because it was not there. Most scholars had said, had the Ark of the Covenant been there when they had ransacked the temple, that would have been something the other nation would have boasted about. Because it was all about the power of your God conquering the other gods. And they would take that Ark of the Covenant, they would place it in front of their God to say, our God is greater than yours. But we hear no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, even after 70 years of their exile, when they returned to their, their home, and Ezra and Nehemiah, you read those stories, and they rebuild Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple. Guess what never returns to the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. Nothing in Scripture records it returning. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed again by Rome, the holy place was found to be empty. God's glory never returned to the Holy of Holies. They had an empty ritual religion where they would come to the temple, they would offer sacrifices, but God wasn't there. His manifest presence wasn't there. Guess where it shows up hundreds of years later? To shepherds who were considered unclean. They weren't in the temple, they weren't in Jerusalem. They were outside Bethlehem. But it says, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And guess what? They were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because I think these shepherds may have heard some stories about what it was like in the Old Testament when God's glory showed up, because shortly after God's glory showed up, people died. So they're probably thinking, I'm next. We're, ne we're going to die. We did something wrong. We're going to die. That's why the angel said, fear not. In other words, guys, you're not going to die. These smelly shepherds had just become a little bit more smelly as they saw the angel and the glory of the Lord, if you know what I'm talking about. And they said, don't, don't fear. Because contrary to what you think, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. You know, that was a lot easier for the shepherds to understand. I guess it must be for all people because here we are, unclean, people who can never go to the temple and yet God shows up right here where we are in our life, in our moment. See, the shepherds didn't wake up that morning and think, okay, guys, this is the day. We got to get really ready because God's like going to show up. They didn't do that. It was the great interruption to their life. God didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm going to do this. It happened right when they weren't expecting it. When they weren't ready, they weren't cleaned up, they weren't spit-polished and shiny, their sheep weren't groomed, they came right then to those shepherds, and God's glory came. You know what that told me? God's glory was coming in a new way. In fact, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the new way the Lord was going to come. Oh, I talked so long, my notes turned off. There we go. <laughs> Isaiah 60. You've heard this passage around Christmas. Arise Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. You see what's happening to the shepherds right now? Do you see what's happening? Do you see Isaiah being fulfilled in Luke 2? The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. That was the state of what was happening in the, in the environment around Jerusalem. And this time, it was darkness. It was thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, 
and his glory appears over you. Isn't that what happened that day? That's why John, when he would write his gospel, he gets it, and he would say this in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, God's glory wasn't contained in some unapproachable space only for the one holy elite person. God's glory was now Jesus incarnate out in the mess of life where he ministered to people, God's grace. His glory and grace was coming in a whole new way. And what the shepherds learned is that when that humanity has nothing to fear when God moves in grace. In the Old Testament, God moved mostly in justice and righteousness and holiness. But now we were in a season where he said, look, my son is coming, and this is a season of grace where I'm going to approach you in grace. In fact, I'm putting it on the lowest shelf possible, the shepherds. So that my message of this being good news to all people will be palatable because it was given to shepherds. Well, here's the thing. They said, we bring you good news of great joy. That'll be for all the people. For to you was born this day a Savior, Christ the Lord. See, here's the thing. Salvation was offered to all mankind. But there has to be something you have to do with that. When you're offered a gift at Christmas, hopefully you'll have one tomorrow or the next day. You have to do what? You have to receive it. You have to receive it. So Jesus is coming for all mankind is great news, but here's the thing. The Savior's offer is universal, but it requires a personal response. It's universal. But if you think because you're born an American under the grace of Jesus Christ that you're saved, no, you're not. His salvation is extended to all, but it requires a personal response. And we respond to that. You know, I, the shepherds did. Let's look at it. Luke 2, verse 13. Suddenly a great company, the heavenly host, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on those on, to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds immediately responded. They weren't satisfied with just hearing and seeing the angels show and the glory of God. I mean, that was pretty cool, but they were like, hang on, there's more, and he's come as a baby. Let's go see this baby. So they go, and they find the baby in a manger, and they are amazed, and they tell everybody what they'd heard, and everybody who hears is amazed. Why? Because God's favor was coming to man. The angels said that, didn't they? 
on whom God's favor rests. Hear me today, people. God's favor rests on you. You might think, oh, no, Kelly, come on. You don't know me. You don't know the mess of my life. God's favor would not come to me until I'm cleaned up. No, that wasn't the message of Christmas. God's favor came to shepherds who were messy. God came in a main, well, in a stable through a virgin's womb. That's messy. That was an expression of his favor. And the point was you can do nothing to clean yourself up because he came right in the mess of it all. That's where his favor rests. Here's, my, here's the thing. Are you resting in God's favor? I know there's Christians, we want to do good, we want to please God, and sometimes we kind of move from pleasing God because we want to to pleasing God because we feel like we have to. Never move in that direction. His favor rests on you. But here's what I've discovered. There are people who are wrestling with God's favor. They feel like they got to do something to grasp it. they got to try harder. Maybe that's been you. Maybe you grew up in a very religious, structured environment where you, you couldn't earn God's favor except through church attendance and Bible reading and, and doing and doing and doing all these things. Maybe it's time to just rest in God's favor, that he loves you, that he favors you, and that he gave his son for you. And the shepherds caught that, and they, they went and they sobbed Jesus, and I'm sure they worshiped him. I, I don't know what it looked like. Luke doesn't give us any explanation except that they found him exactly as they were told, and that was God, approachable in baby form, good news for all people in a baby. And so what they do? They left that place telling people everywhere they went what they had seen and heard. Here's the thing. People who experience the good news... They share the good news. If they experience it, they're like, okay, this is the kind of news we just can't keep to ourselves. This has got to go public. And you know what that feels like, right? When you've had some good news, you're like, I can't, I can't keep this to myself. This has got to go public. And so you go to Facebook and say, I'm in a relationship, heart, heart. <laughs> you know, why? Because you got to share the good news. Or just had a baby, so pictures, weight, size, hair color, whatever, all on, because it's good news, and you want to share that with people. And then you want them to share it, and they want them to, to boost your post further, because that's good news. The shepherds didn't have the advantage of social media, the internet, or any of those things. They used their good old-fashioned mouth, and they said, you will not believe what happened to us. And they shared the good news everywhere they went. Here's the thing. For us as Christians, we have to understand, we've experienced good news, but I think we have become so accustomed to it that it doesn't feel good anymore. It feels routine. Can I remind you that the news you hold inside of you, there are people who are desperate to hear. They, might, they may not be saying to you, oh, will you please tell me about Jesus? Will you please share with me your born-again experience? And chances are they won't come here to find it for themselves. But I'm so glad that God didn't say, okay, I'm going to come at the temple. I'm going to be born on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which doesn't exist. But I want people to come and worship me there. And then priests, you share the good news. No, I think what's beautiful about this 
is ordinary unschooled men went with the gospel of Jesus Christ and told it wherever they went. You might not feel prepared to talk about Jesus because you didn't go to Bible college. You didn't take the how to share your faith class that was offered at the church. You're like, I don't know I can do this. Guess what? The shepherds weren't prepared at all. All they could do was share what they had what? Seen and heard. There are people that you will spend Christmas with whose lives are desperate in need of hope. And they might have tried religion and it didn't answer their question. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't come in religion? That was in place. It was happening. It was empty. It was there. He came as our Savior with skin on, a baby, so approachable. That's what people need to hear today. But are you putting the good news within reach of those around you? In how you live, please, yes but also in how you converse with them. I know folks don't want churchy talk. They don't want, you know, but your story is your story. And here's what I know about good news. Good news is good news when it invades bad spaces. And there are people who are around you who are in some pretty bad spaces. And they need some good news from you about a God who is for them, whose favor rests on them, a God who loves them enough to say, I'm gonna leave eternity and inner life with you, to be your savior who will bleed and die and be wrapped by my mother again and placed into a tomb, but resurrect from that tomb to give you life, not just now, but for eternity. Friends, that's good news, and that's worthy of sharing. And that's the point the angel said. They said, listen, today, today, a Savior has been born. I love the fact that they kind of accentuate today. A Savior has been born. It's not something you're gonna get to at some point in time. Maybe later, you know, maybe I'll tell my dad later. Maybe I'll have that conversation with my coworker later. No, listen, the angel said today, don't miss it, a Savior was born to you. I love how in Hebrews it talks about how today is the day of salvation. I love the fact that Jesus was spoken of, of the writer of Hebrews, to say that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That baby born then as Savior, Jesus is still the Savior today. And he wants to see people come to him, yes, but you to share that good news today. Of all days, when, like I said last week, people are surrounded with the good news of the birth of Jesus. They can't help but hear it in Christmas songs. May God use that. And may we look at Luke 2 again with fresh eyes to recognize that just like it took humility for Jesus to be born, for him to be born in our lives, to have that born again, that newness of life, it requires humility. That we come to him and say, Jesus, I know a mess and I can't fix it. Don't add to that. Don't, don't take anything else into that equation. Just say, that's what it is, because that's where God meets you. And while his offer of salvation is universal, you have to make the choice to personally accept it. And then once you have, don't keep that news to yourself, because people who experience good news, they share the good news. Because today, a Savior has been born for you, for your dad for that weird uncle that only comes around at Christmas, for him. Let's pray.
God, thank you for the wonder of Christmas. We get so used to the story that we really do forget the amazing truth of this story. And yeah, it's pretty simple. It's pretty unextraordinary, really, as we look at it. But you did that on purpose. Because you come for pretty ordinary, unextraordinary people. You're our Savior. The good news is within reach of all of us because it's a baby who's approachable. So I pray for those in the room right now who have maybe made God somebody who was too far away, God who's nothing but a bunch of empty talk and religion and, and no significance for me. But today they've heard a different story that when God showed up, he showed up in the mess of our lives, right, where people live. And he did that to say, I'm here for you today. Savior is born. And if you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, I need that today. I'm a mess. And in humility, I'm going to come and I'm going to say, Jesus, would you be born in my life because I need something that is lasting because my life is not working for me. And if that's you, in just the humility of this moment and the heads are bowed, just raise your hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Would you pray with me today? Anybody in the room? That's me today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that that's who you are, Savior, today. And that is the most incredible news of all time. And may we be like the shepherds. Yeah, you showed up right in our life, and thank you for that, because our life was a mess. But you came, and your glory came in a whole new way, because you said, I'm with you now. I'm not against you, I'm for you. And I'm Savior. And then the, sa the, the shepherds left, and they immediately went and responded to what was going on. And I'm sure that day they looked at that baby, Jesus, you in the manger, and said, Savior. Because they knew what that would mean for them. But then they didn't leave there silent. They shared that as they went with everybody they bumped into. And I'm sure there are people that were perplexed by what they said, confused. There were those that were amazed. And God, as we leave this room today, we know we're going to spend time with family and friends over the holiday season, and we have some people that we love very deeply who are very broken right now. And maybe they don't even know it. Maybe they're trying so hard to hide it from everybody through an addiction or, or through acting like it's all okay, but we know. God, would you use us to share good news this season? our story of what you did in our life to put good news within the reach of those that we love as well. Because that's what this is all about. That's why you came. It wasn't to celebrate Christmas with presents and trees and songs and candy and overeating. You came as a Savior. Let us not miss that. Let us share that good news as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.